0: This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Dr. Joshua Grubbs, assistant professor of psychology at Bowling Green State University. And he is the author of the recently published article, Pornography Use and Psychological Science, A Call for Consideration. Thank you very much for being here, Josh.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, To begin by putting things in context, how prevalent is viewing pornography? What percentage of people regularly view pornography and how much time do they spend doing it?
1: Right. So the the simple answer is a lot, right? There's just a lot of people doing this. But it's actually a little bit more complicated than just just saying, you know, a lot or a certain percentage. Because what we have seen from recent research, actually, is that the answer to that question seems to vary a bit by how you ask the question and who you ask. And what I mean by that is, assuming that you're in a country with free internet access, not free internet access, but high speed internet access, and free access in the sense of not restricted or censored internet access. So developed nations with unrestricted internet access. uh, When we ask them generally, you know, when was the last time you viewed pornography? What we find is About 40 to 50% of men and about 15 to 20% of women say that they've done so in the past week or so. If you ask that differently, you know, the past month, the past year, or if you ask how often you view pornography, you get slightly different percentages. But what we think based on self-reports that we've seen from from different studies is that somewhere between 60 and 90% of men are viewing pornography every year probably around 60 to 75% are viewing it about every month. With women, we're seeing anywhere from 15 to 40% reporting every year and more like 15 to 25% every month. So a lot of people in developed nations, I mean, we're talking about basically half of men and you know, a fifth to a half of, I mean, a fifth to a quarter of women as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like viewing pornography is a major human activity and that people engage in it far more than say doing math or engaging in political or philosophical discussions. And yet there's far more research on mathematical reasoning and persuasive argumentation than there is on pornography. Why do you think that is?
1: You know, that, that's a big question, and that's one that we kind of take a little bit to task, I think, in in this uh, paper you just mentioned, the one that we just published in Current Directions. It's not always been this way. So if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, there was a small but regular stream of, of writing on erotica or uh, erotic images or pornography in mainstream psychology journals and in mm-hmm. top level outlets i mean jpsp had several papers in the 60s and 70s on this topic and yet by the mid 80s it kind of dried up altogether there there's not been anything huge in any of these major outlets since about 1985 or so. And even those papers in the mid 80s on pornography use in major outlets were more commentary kind of pieces in places like American Psychologist* and things like that, just not a lot of empirical research. You know, if nothing about pornography used to change since the 80s, then I would say, okay, that's fine. I mean, you know, nothing's changed. But the internet happened. And uh, as uh, many people might know, there's quite a bit of pornography on the internet. And so, the reason as to why this research is not kind of permeated in the mainstream, you know, I'm not sure. We, we have tons of great research on video games now. Um, we have tons of conflicting research on video games where people are arguing different angles on it. And in pornography use, perhaps there's stigma. You know, this is a taboo topic. At the end of the day, asking people about what, you know, looking at sexual images and their masturbation habits to sexual images, that's, that's controversial. I don't think that's enough to, to explain why there's been as little research as there has been just because psychologists ask controversial questions and do controversial research all the time. I think part of it is there, there may be some just kind of, and this is more my opinion, maybe than I could point to evidence, but I I do think that there's oftentimes psychologists just feel like this is not one of the topics that is a scientific topic, you know, now, I mean, it's, it's porn use and it's, it's going on websites and, and looking at people doing sexual acts and it's just not necessarily as rigorous or, um, or as prestigious, I think prestigious is the word I'm looking for there, kind of sounding of an interest as political polarization, or, you know, attitude change, or things like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, So, Alfred Kinsey was a professor Mm -hmm. here at Indiana University, where I am, and he was the founding director of the Institute for Sexual Research, Um, and he bumped up a lot of exactly that continued resistance mm-hmm. to his work on sexual behavior being published. Um, and I think part of it is just that some behaviors, depending upon the, the current milieu within the environment, aren't considered legitimate topics for psychology. Mm-hmm. Fads come and go. Yep. Um, yeah. So what do we know about the relation between use of pornography and negative interpersonal relations?
1: Right. So this is, this is hugely controversial. So, you know, I've talked about there being kind of this absence of of research in high levels, you know, psychological outlets over the years. There actually has been a a fair bit of research in communication studies, in uh, some of the sexual science journals, and even some of the interpersonal relationship journals on the topic of pornography use. So we, we do have this, some of this research, and it is very controversial. And what I mean by that is some research pretty clearly links more pornography use to less relationship and sexual satisfaction, particularly for heterosexual men. But when you get into the kind of nuances of this, we actually find that among uh, gay and bisexual men that are in same-sex relationships or in open relationships, we often find that it's not necessarily related to less sexual satisfaction. In heterosexual women, it's often associated with more sexual satisfaction or with no effect whatsoever. Uh, And there's virtually no research on non-heterosexual women, so on on lesbian and bisexual women. We we actually have very little research on those populations, Um, and then also virtually no research on, you know, genderqueer and non-conforming individuals and their relationship dynamics as well. So we know there are some negatives, um, particularly for heterosexual men, but again, this is associational, and yet there's also times, especially for heterosexual women or um, in some situations in in other populations where it's associated with more sexual satisfaction. So it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, You know, there seems to be some negative, there seems to be some positive. And until we start really getting more rigorous research, I don't think that we'll be able to develop kind of a comprehensive model for its relational effects.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as with much of psychology it's hard to sort out causality from correlation is there any literature that points to decent evidence that porn use is actually causing negative relationship outcomes when it does for example for heterosexual males
1: we do have longitudinal research that suggests (laughs) that earlier levels of pornography use do at times predict later levels of lower sexual and relationship satisfaction. Now it's worth mentioning uh, that when you control for baseline levels of masturbation, which could be thought of as maybe an alternative sexual outlet um, or an indicator of uh, unmet sexual desire, unmet sexual desire, particularly with regards to frequency in a relationship. So once you control for that masturbation at baseline, you actually don't see any effects of pornography on sexual satisfaction long-term. So it may just be that pornography is an indicator of other things that are going on. Now, I mean, this is fiercely debated. And one of the interesting things about pornography use is for, you know, for all that I've said about psychology needing to get more rigorous in its pursuit of it, there's tons of public activism around pornography use. And so there's a lot of very anti-pornography if you will activists that will very very strongly claim that it's destroying relationships and marriage and a lot of more sex positive kind of pro-pornography activists that will actually say well there's no evidence of that whatsoever and so you hear very polarized opinions in the public and the research itself is like well maybe there are some negative effects it's not clear that it's causal it is clear that it's something we should study more but you know what do we make of it we just don't know yet and it's almost impossible to manipulate this stuff experimentally you know there are some studies that have done experimental manipulations where they've shown people pornographic images and then done things like rating partner attractiveness and things like that Hmm. a famous study of those back from i believe it was the 90s um that um looked at it. No, it was the 80s, that looked at it and they said that it decreased sexual attraction between partners, but replication mm-hmm. attempts at that have all failed. Uh-huh. Um, so so the causation piece is just not clear.
0: Right, right. Uh following up on something you just mentioned, um, something one hears less about in the mainstream press is possible positive uses of pornography. And you were talking about potential advocate groups. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any evidence that using pornography actually has some psychological benefits too?
1: Well, we we know that um, pornography use is often used when people are just, you know, feeling unmet sexual desire or boredom. And if you ask people about their pornography use, they'll often say that, you know, it helps them when they're bored or just, you know, feeling like they have sexual desires and they don't have an outlet and they'll report right. that this is a positive aspect of their life. Um, There are other aspects of it that some kind of case study or or more qualitative research suggests might be positive. For example, um, in LGBTQ adolescents um, or Mm -hmm. adults, I understand that the adolescent use of pornography is very controversial, but especially people that are in non-supportive environments um, for their sexuality that are looking to kind of understand themselves and explore themselves in a safe and non-threatening way, it's just frankly it's safer to look at internet pornography than to go cruising for casual sex and some you know, possibly not safe venue or something like that. So there's there's options for that pornography provides that could be beneficial, especially for people that are lacking sexual options in maybe the region that they are.
0: Yeah, All right, good point. Yeah, I, I've seen that many United States states have passed legislation calling pornography a public health crisis. In your mind, does pornography use currently constitute a crisis or how should we think about it scientifically?
1: Well, you know, there's a couple of things to think about here. And so something, the the first and foremost thought in my mind with this is that there are public health researchers that have actually kind of taken this to task and said, no, it's just not a crisis. Now, and, and I, I trust the experts in their field, but but having said that also, you know, I think it's, it's useful to think about other Public health crises that we as a, a nation recognize—you know, things like the coronavirus, um, which has killed you know four hundred <laughs> almost four hundred fifty thousand Americans. We talk about the obesity epidemic. Uh, we talk about gun violence. We talk about historically the um, tobacco, cigarette, nicotine—you know—issues being a public health crisis. Um, and when you look at the scale of of suffering and sickness and death that are associated with these other crises that I've just mentioned, there's just there's no evidence at all that pornography is doing any of those things. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's very important. Now you know, the other piece that I would I would bring up with this is that if you believe something's a public health crisis as a legislature or as a government or or, or as an activist, you should be really working to ensure that there is funding going into the research of these topics and to the treatment of them and their amelioration. And to my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, but to my knowledge of the 17 states that have passed legislation calling pornography a public health crisis, I don't think a single one of them have put a single dollar (laughs) into actually funding research around the use of pornography and its effects or the effective treatment or education around it either. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah, great point. Um, I'd like to hear something about the topic of porn addiction. So how do psychologists determine that somebody is addicted to pornography? And I'm wondering how big a problem is it? And how does addiction relate to moral beliefs that pornography use is wrong?
1: right no definitely so this is actually where my my primary research program is i i've been publishing on this notion of self-reported addiction to pornography uh since actually my my senior year of undergrad so it's been a, a long stretch that i've been doing this and it's as much as i've talked about there being controversies around all of this research it's extremely controversial yet again with pornography addiction so there's this very popular notion if you You look, um, I mean, you could go on amazon.com right now and search for pornography addiction and find hundreds of books on how to treat him. Um, The reality is the mental health community does not not have a diagnosis that is pornography addiction. There's no such thing as porn addiction in any diagnostic manual. The DSM almost included a diagnosis um, in its fifth edition for uh, hypersexual behavior disorder. It would have largely subsumed the notion of porn addiction. It would basically refer to any out-of-control sexual behavior that a person couldn't stop even though they tried. So in theory, pornography use could have fit in there, but it was not included in the final DSM or in the appendices, didn't even get non honorable mention. So it's not there. Um, now, having said that, the World Health Organization did recently vote to include a new diagnosis in the International Classification of Diseases, the 11th edition, which is coming out next year, and that new diagnosis is compulsive sexual behavior disorder and it's basically the notion that some people struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors that they cannot stop that they've tried to stop and they can't it's resulting in all sorts of problems in their life in theory pornography use can fit under that umbrella now i will note that the diagnostic criteria for um compulsive sexual behavior disorder note that you can't just be distressed over violating your moral beliefs and get this diagnosis. And it it highlights this idea that morality is important to self-reported pornography addiction. And this is actually one of the big things that my research program has tried to show is that in populations where there's a large religious subculture or majoritarian culture, depending on where you are, you actually find that one of the best predictors of whether or not someone says they are addicted to pornography is the interaction between the use of pornography and their moral disapproval of pornography. And so people that think pornography is morally fine and use a lot of pornography, maybe they're using pornography every day, half an hour a day or so, they're very unlikely to say that they think that they are addicted. They're also very unlikely to report consequences in their life related to pornography or problems in their life related to pornography use. But if you take someone who's very, very infrequently using pornography, say once a month or so, but thinks that it's just morally the worst, my my religion, my morals tell me this is wrong, I should not do this. Those people are much more likely to say they have an addiction, much more likely Mm -hmm. to say it's causing problems in their life, much more likely just to report all around negative consequences. And it points to this notion of what my colleagues and I have called moral incongruence, or just the incongruence between your moral beliefs and your actual behaviors around pornography. And it's a powerful predictor. It's a longitudinal predictor. It's cross-sectional. We've done it in nationally representative samples. We've done it in nationally representative samples in Poland. We've replicated it in Malaysia. It's, it's something that we've seen across various settings that this notion of moral disapproval of pornography combined with use is a very powerful predictor whether or not you think you have an addiction to pornography. Interesting. Great. Yeah, thank you for that.
0: Um, As one final question, returning to something that you said earlier, it definitely seems that over the last 30 years, it is increasingly easy for many people to instantly have access to as much porn as they care to view. Um, And that does seem like a major technology-induced change that we as psychologists could treat as a large-scale intergenerational Mm -hmm. social psychology experiment. So do you think that this information revolution has meant that psychology of people born in the 1990s is somehow fundamentally different compared to people born in, say, the 1950s?
1: Right. I mean, that's that's a fascinating question. And this this notion of intergenerational differences due to a whole variety of factors has been the topic of, of just tons of controversial research outside of pornography used to whether it's generational personality traits or technology or all of these other effects. And I, I think, you know, one of the big things that, that I personally have taken from evolutionary psychology and I'm not an evolutionary psychologist is that fundamentally people are quite similar over time, but our environment has changed quite a bit. And I, I, I would argue that, you know, people are people, regardless of what generation they were born in, but we do have a younger generation that are growing up from a young, very young age, having easy access to infinite sexual variety, if they so choose. Now, I think it would be hard to argue that that has no effect, that it just, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever, how 25 year olds today View pornography or our view sexuality in general is totally the same as people that were born in uh, the 1890s would have been, or the people that were born in the 1950s. Now, I don't think that this is a moral or a a judgment of good or bad, right? I, I think that sure. this noting that there's probably differences is descriptive. We don't necessarily know fully what those differences are, and we don't know how much of it we might attribute to things like uh, access to pornography and other technologies, and how much is just, you know, cultural change. So arguably, the sexual values of younger generations tend to be more open-minded and accepting than maybe older generations. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's maybe it's not as good as we think for various other reasons. It's, it's something that I think that we need this kind of research to delve more deeply into it and unfortunately even though you know I've noted it's not been in some of the mainstream journals a lot of this research did start occurring in the sexual science journals and, and other journals starting in the late 90s and carrying into the present and although you know there's still a ton of work to do I'm optimistic that we're actually going to start being able to see some of this intergenerational kind of consideration over the next 10 years because we're building enough of a body of research that you know the people we studied their pornography use behaviors and attitudes at around 2000 were people that were born in the 70s and 80s, but the people that we're studying now are people that you know are the post 9/11 babies that that have grown in a really different world. So we're starting to see, I guess, cross temporal effects, if you will, uh, just in the literature, and and hopefully we're going to start seeing some meta science that, that aggregates this and starts to look at those trends over time. Yeah, great.
0: Okay. That's all the time we have for our conversation with Joshua Grubbs. Uh, Thanks very much, Josh, for the stimulating conversation. I'm glad to do it.
1: Thank you for having me.